Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is December 10th, 2014. This is episode 1481 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got an interesting one for you today. I'm going to talk to you today about the business of the backyard nursery. And I have a big announcement about that as well, kind of fitting in with that. It is kind of coincidental. I've had this, this show planned for quite a while. Uh, it's actually a lead-up to the talk I'm going to be doing at Permaculture Voices 2. Uh, and yes, there are some of you guys out there that have submitted essays, and I took too long to pick winners, but I'm going to do that by the end of this week, I promise you. So winners will hear back from Diego from the essay contest uh, by the end of this week for the PV2 essay contest. But at Permaculture Voices 2, I will be talking about the profitable business of running small nurseries. And I'm going to talk to you about that today as well because I think it is one of the easiest things that a person that wants a business can do to make money for a relatively low investment. And I think that, honestly, it's experience and education that are the key. And I think we can help you with that as well. I will also be talking about basic business principles today. I want you to realize something. When you hear me do a show about business and I am dissecting the niches within that business, or I am talking about the method I would use in that business. Even though it's specific to that particular business, obviously it is, the methodology is what you should be paying attention to. So if you wanted to start up a business, I don't know, doing small engine repair. Not necessarily the thing that I would go into, but boy, you know what? You might have more business than you know what to do with if you did. And you were listening to this show thinking, well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do small business, small engine repair or whatever, sharpening knives. I don't know, whatever. These principles are universally applicable. They are the way that you build value. I did a show recently where I talked about money. And in that show, I talked about how you actually acquire wealth. And I'm going to lead off today's show with revisiting that topic for a few moments. But I want to encourage you to really listen today, even if like growing plants isn't your thing, because the principle of value creation, niche marketing, customer acquisition, wealth accumulation are universal. And even if you think, I just want to be an employee, I just want to know how to store rice and beans for the end of the world... The end of the world probably isn't going to be here. We're going to have a little note on that from Alex Shrug today in your lifetime. Not the end of the world the way we talk about it. And there's a lot to build for. And the real disasters in life are the things we talk about in our Monday Prepper scenarios, but they are also lives wasted and opportunities not taken. I'm going to try to talk to you about all of those things today, wrapped up in the story of a backyard nursery. Before I do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Fortress Defense Consultants. Frank Sharp Jr. will help you complete that triangle of gun operator efficiency. If you are going to be the operator of a gun, you need to have a gun. No gun, no gun operator. In the gun, you got to have ammo. That's where BulkAmmo.com comes in. But when you when you look at it that way... You can buy high-quality ammo and high-quality firearms. You can just purchase those. They're commodities. Training is unique. It is you. It's about you and your capabilities. And it's about adapting your limitations and your capabilities together along with good training so that you can perform at your highest level when it's most necessary. 
Fortress Defense will help you do this, just that. And they won't just train you while you're there. They'll train you to train yourself. So you can continue your training after you go home. And remember, if you don't want to travel up to Indiana where Frank Sharp's school is, put together a group, six, eight guys, get in touch with them. They will bring the training to you. Check them out today, FortressDefense.com. Next up today, Ready Made Resources. Ready Made Resources is the company that is what it is, says what it does, and does what it says. Ready Made Resources provides all the resources you need for your prepping, ready made, ready to go. Point, click, and buy on their website. Great value, great pricing, great supporters of the show. They have been with us for a very, very long time. Uh, I would say probably the third longest sponsor that we've had. Uh, going back, you know, this coming year will be six years of working with ready-made resources. They're loyal to us. Please consider that when you're considering what to get for your prepping needs next. Check them out today at readymaderesources.com. Uh, next up today, let us look at the year that was the episode. I said I would have something to you about the world not ending. And it goes all the way back to 1481 and the mentality of exploration and the pioneering spirit and the willingness to venture out and do things in the sad state that this nation is in right now because we've lost that. I'll pull it all together for you after I give you Alex Shrug's segment and his take. I do have two today, Buying a New Sultan and Columbus, A Fortunate Mistake. I'm going to read Columbus, A Fortunate Mistake, because it does all the things I just said. There is no flat earth society among the educated of the time. No, they did not think you were going to fall off the edge of the earth in 1481, let alone 1492. Most people believe that the Earth is a sphere, but they disagree as to how big the sphere is. Christopher Columbus believes the Earth is 18,000 miles in circumference. It's actually around 24,900 miles measured along the equator. I'd say he's pretty close for, for the time, right? The scientist and map maker Paulo Tuscalini is firmly in the camp and believes that Asia is just a hop, skip, and a jump away. So he writes a letter to the Portuguese who have been looking for a route around Africa and a second letter to Christopher Columbus, including a map that shows Cathay, that is China, just 3,000 miles west of Europe. Columbus is convinced that the voyage is worth trying. The Portuguese will disagree and turn Columbus's proposal down but they will pass him on to Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand of Spain. My take by Alex Shrug. This is where the science gets really, really wrong, but it turns out better than one could expect. It's sort of like going to the moon in a redesigned ICBM missile, guided by a computer that is less powerful than a kid's pocket calculator. What kind of knucklehead would do that? Well, the United States did that in the 1960s because it was competing with the Soviet Union over which political system was best for mankind. The science of the 60s was not advanced, but the attempt to reach the moon spurred research that changed our lives today. In 2014, going to the moon should be a cakewalk. President Obama has set a goal for Mars. But so far, the USA can't even send people to near orbit anymore. Despite all we can do as a survival community, one thing is certain. This ball of dirt has an expiration date. Setting aside the belief in man-made global warming and religious end-of-day scenarios, the end is not near. Not today, not tomorrow, not in our lifetimes. Not even in our great-great-grandchildren's lifetimes, but sometime. We explore the unknown because ultimately trying to do something is substantially different from thinking about doing something. Oh, wow. I'm talking, uh, Alex had some stuff he had to take care of in his life that was tough and came back and talk about a home run. 
I, I could not sum up better my feelings for where we're at today than that. We are now at a point where that's what we do. We think about doing things versus try to get them done. When I was a kid, I've talked about this briefly before, but this is like kind of burying my soul to the audience. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a freaking astronaut, right? That's what I wanted to be. I dreamed of being an astronaut. And I'm glad nobody told me, dude, you're blind in one eye. You're never going to get in flight school back then, right? Because that was my thought. I would go and I would learn to fly planes and I would be, you know, and I was going to go to the moon and get moon rocks and bring them back for my grandmother to make earrings out of. Such is the mind of a six-year-old. And I had this lazy boy recliner. It was, I don't know if it was a lazy boy, it was a recliner, a big white chair that my grandfather had. I would sit in that chair and rock back and think I was a freaking astronaut because I drank Tang. I was going to launch off and go to the moon and get moon rocks. It sounds funny. Ah, kid, he's going to go to the moon. But do kids do that anymore? Do our six-year-olds dream of going to the moon someday? I don't think they do. And it's, it's really, to me, it's sad. Because I think one of the reasons that so many amazing things happened from the 70s through the 90s is people dreamed big. And even if you, if you dream a thousand and fall 50% short, you hit 500, which is pretty damn good. But if you dream 50 and fall short, you hit 25. I think that is where we're at today. We are now in the world of thinking about doing versus doing. And I'd like to see that pioneering spirit return to America. And I hope that in talking about entrepreneurship from time to time on the show, I encourage you to have that pioneering spirit because the creation of value is a pioneering thing. That's why pioneers pioneered for the creation of value. Anyway, with that, let us get into the main topic of today's show. I did say I have a big announcement today that goes along with the topic. Uh, Nick Ferguson, one of my partners in permaethos.com, has been working very hard to put together a plant propagation course. He's in the uh, the final push on it right now with editing and compiling and things together. It is going to be about a six- to eight-hour video course by the time it's all over with. Downloadable video. It's going to be available at permaethos.com. It is going to be retail. $350. It's going to tell you how to make all the things I'm going to talk about today happen. And um, it is is going to be a great value. But what we're doing is anybody that registers in advance between now and, and Christmas Eve can buy it for $300. Founders and Class 01 will get a, di a permanent discount of $325 on the course if they don't do it now. They can do it anytime they want in the future. Okay, But, and those are people that came in and helped us out with the initial founding of permaethos. So if you're one of those, you know who you are. If you don't know, then you're not one. Uh, so that will be a permanent discount offered to them on over the $350. But anybody can get the initial discount, and it's simple. Go read about the course at permaethos.com, fill out a form, click submit, and you'll get a code. You can use that code uh, for about 30 days after the course goes live, and it'll go live on or about January 16th. We've done something else cool. If you have like a plant geek in your life that you've been wanting to get this course for, We have a little certificate you can print out and fill out presented to, presented by on the bottom of it. And basically, you're not buying it in advance, but you can say, like, you're getting it, and here's something that shows what you're getting. So that's available at permaethos.com, and I'll have a link in today's show notes where you can learn more about that course. But it's all about plant propagation, setting up a backyard nursery. So it dovetails nicely into today's episode. But I want to talk to you today about 
Backyard nurseries, why I think they're a good thing, whether it's a business or simply if you're doing your own large property installation. And to me, a large property installation, when you start talking about money, is an acre is huge. You can put tens and tens of thousands of dollars playing retail for plants into an acre, into a half acre. It gets very expensive very fast. In fact, let me put it to you this way. Um, so far... In the last two years, I've planted well over 400 trees, bushes, vines, etc. in my property. I don't even know the actual number at this point. But I know 400 is, is low-balling it. Right now, I have 150 small support trees, locusts and autumn olive, waiting to be planted into my food forest area. That area is only three-quarters of an acre. There's 150 more small. These are little trees, right? These were, these were inexpensive. The rest of the money. This was these little bitty seedling trees that are going in for support. Uh, the sheer variety of what will be budding out going into full-on growth mode in 2015 has me excited. There's over 20 varieties of apple. I, I really have to sit down and even do some of these numbers to figure out. There's probably at least that many, if not more, plums. There's six different varieties of low-chill cherries and more. I, I have to find a home yet for 10 bush hazels. I'm trying to look for that little, perfect, cool, enough sun niche for them to survive in this heat down here. I even found a spot I call Current Row. It's now playing with seven different current varieties. And it's this little sweet spot I found, perfect for currants, because I planted like 20 currants and 19 died, and one thrived. And it told me this is the microclimate. So now I'm taking the different varieties. So it was cheap currants. Now I'm putting my designer currants in there. And I can propagate a whole shit ton of those and just put them all over the property and find other sweet spots for them and prove you can grow currants in Texas, just because I want to. Um, it is. It's really been gr great. Uh, I have a ton of different varieties of autumn olives, and they're going like gangbusters. Three different mulberry species have comfrey all over. We'll see how much comes back after the geese and ducks ate it to the ground, but there should be tons of comfrey coming up in the spring all over the place. It's been a lot of fun, but let me tell you what I've learned during this time. Number one, plants are fascinating. You, the more you learn about plants and trees, the more you realize what you don't know. You start learning about families and pattern recognition. You start looking at a tree and go, oh, that's an apple. I just know that's an apple now. I know it's an apple species. I know it's apple-like. And then you start finding out what it is, and you start tracing lineages, and, oh, that's not actually an apple. Here's what it actually it, it's, it's It's just awesome. The variety of what available is available to grow in any climate of stack. Well, what do I grow here? What do I grow there? There's so much you can grow anywhere. Just start looking stuff up. Uh, and then small spaces can be planted with dozens or hundreds of trees. I have this little area that's about 15 by 60 that's a small zone one style food forest. And I just planted a ton more crap into it. I'm just going, there's so much more room there. There's so many more things that need to go in there. Um, so the small space development is, is huge in opportunity. And I'm also beginning to realize like for every tree you plant, for every like main tree, you're probably want at least 10 other plants, different perennial herbs and things like that. And those actually add up to cost more than the trees in the totality of what you're doing over time. Uh, and then finding what you want is often difficult or highly seasonal. I can get trees in the fall, and I can get trees in the spring, and that's about it. I can get th from the fall through the winter, bare roots, I guess you'd say. But all through the rest of the year, it's difficult to get anything. Stuff sells out. By the time you figure out what you want, you can't get it till next year. It's tough. But here's the big one. Plants and trees are freaking expensive. I mean, I'm doing this show today more for that than any other reason. I believe that we need more people growing more things because we can capitalize on profit because of what's not available and how much margin there is available, and because I want more stuff planted, and if we're going to plant our own stuff, we need to drive down a cost for ourselves. 
And I, I think you can do that with your own propagation systems better than anything else. So let me start out with briefly just telling you my current plans for what I'm doing. I'm probably not taking this to the level that many of you will. I see this as a small side business for my wife to run because she wants something of her own to go with her eggs, and we want to broaden our product offering and things like that. We want to put a little storefront out there. We just ordered some signage, all that good stuff. So I'm kind of doing this on a really small scale, but, yeah, we can still produce tens of thousands of, of cuttings based on our current plan. Um, the first thing is we put in intermittent misting beds, and this is one of the keys to being really able to propagate just about anything. Intermittent mist is a system where your cuttings sit in a box uh, system, a, a sand-based or, or vermiculite perlite-based uh, system, and every so often, at, at a predetermined frequency based on what you're doing, the misters come on and go for 10 seconds and go off, and it's a mist. And it is the kind of golden egg type thing for producing cuttings. And I learned how to do that from Nick, and it's part of his course. So we've already got it mostly set up. A few other things we need to do to finish that. We're also putting in some beds about the same size for growing trees from seed and for growing trees out into the second year for bare root trees and for rootstocks and things like that. And I'm putting in a nursery workstation, which is basically a great big shelving system that allows me to do things like potting up plants to keep certain plants that are in pots off the ground so they're not eaten by the ducks and the dogs, etc. And that system is being set up to do storage and so that water can go through the top. The top's open, and we're building in a watershedding feature underneath so that when you water the plants, the stuff stored below doesn't get wet, and all the water runs out into my top swale. That's being built on the east side of my outbuilding over by a water catchment tank. And we've plumbed now, and I'll have a video out for you guys this week on updates for MSB members. We have two 1,500-gallon tanks now plumbed together with two-inch pipe. They're run into the outbuilding where there's power, and they're going to go through a filtering system and a pump that are going to, that's going to run the misting system, provide irrigation for the nursery so I can use 100% rainwater for those uses and needs. And that way I can get off the hard water and all the calcification and alkalinity by going to a rainwater system for plant propagation. So that's my short-term plans. All that's being done right now, and by the time Sam, Sam and his wife Barb leave, who have been here, and he's doing some of these projects for me, that will all be done, or damn close. My future plants, I do want to put in a greenhouse. I don't think you need a greenhouse to do plant propagation. In fact, I think in many ways, a greenhouse can be a detriment to people if used improperly. I think in a climate like mine, though, it's almost ideal. You have to understand, everybody thinks about greenhouses in northern climates, and there's good reason for it, for food production and what have you. But down here, from a propagation standpoint, it shines at a higher level, and here's why. I only get about four months a year where freezing is even possible. I get about two where it's common. And even at that time, I only get freezing temperatures maybe half of that two-month period, 30 days on average overnight. And then my other two months on both sides of it, it's intermittent. This means with the right greenhouse, the right heating, the right thermal battery system, that I can grow straight through the year really easy. And even if I'm using low-tech supplemental heat, let's say a small wood-burning stove you can pick up at Tractor Supply for 150 bucks, right, instead of a really high-end rocket mass heater, I can still keep that place warm easily. 
and I can do some simple low-tech, low-tech, high-tech things I'll talk about here in a second to keep it working with the mild frost. Like, so when you're talking 30 degrees and that type of thing. So here's what I want to do for my greenhouse. Um, really high quality. Probably custom built instead of a kit. I looked at kits. I looked at custom build. I think I can custom build for about the same price as a kit and do a lot better. Highly insulated. Everywhere that it can be insulated, it's going to be insulated. I'm talking insulated windows into insulated walls. And I have some ideas that might sound expensive, but when you start pricing out greenhouse kits, they're not. Um, the real rear wall will be solid with no glass. I, I, no glass, I would put an asterisk you know, next to type thing, because there'll probably be some windows back there for ventilation, but no glass specifically to light in. What's the point? So a highly insulated rear wall. The floor, I'm going to build up, and I'm going to have a gravel bed-based floor. In that gravel-based floor will be piping. The piping will stub up, and this will create what I call a thermal battery system, because, well, that's what it is. One of the pipes will go up all the way to the roof on the back side of the greenhouse, because it's going to be a lean-to-style roof, only slant in one direction. It's going to slant to, guess what, the south, because that's where my solar aspect is. So that pipe will go up high on the back. That's where the hot air is. And the other pipe will come up low toward the front where the cooler air is. Actually, probably low toward the rear where the cooler air is falling down as the hot air is venting out. There will be a little fan in there, a little bitty fan, a little bit bigger than a computer fan, and it will blow air through the pipes that are in the ground. And in the winter, it will suck air down the tall pipe where the hottest air is and push it into the ground. And that will let the ground vent it out in the evening. And in the summer... It will pull air in through the low pipe, so it just can be reversed forward or backward. Pull in, so the coolest air all day into the ground to help keep it cool. So pull the cool air in at night to help keep it cool during the day with a cool floor, and then pull the hot air in from the top during the day in the winter to help keep it warm in the winter. So that is very low tech and very inexpensive to do. You're talking about fill gravel and some pipes, and you know, I mean, you're not talking about high pressure pipes or anything like that. Uh, as far as, you're not putting water through, just an air pipe. So that's going to be actually really easy to do and I think really advantageous. Again, I'm going to do a lean-to lean style roof with inexpensive, decent skylights in them instead of greenhouse paneling. So I'm going to build this more like a small house with plants in it. Uh, you know, I saw, I talked to one of my uh, listeners that comes by the house recently and he picked up a, a cheap, uh, got for almost nothing a, uh, what do you call it, a hot tub. On Craigslist, he's going to use for aquaponics. And I'm sitting there looking at it going, all the Craigslist cheap hot tubs that are out there that actually work and are functional, you can put one of those in there that's not for aquaponics. It's actually a hot tub to sit in on a cold winter day surrounded by plants in the sun. So maybe. I don't know. That's that's a maybe. But that's how I'm thinking. I'm thinking of this more of not just for what it can do for me from a plant propagation And, and food production standpoint, but a, a pleasant place to go on a day when it's, you know, 25 degrees outside but the sun shining and feel like you're outside, like an arboreum. Uh, I even said to Sam, it'd be kind of cool to, uh, to throw some finches in there and make it like an aviary. I don't know that I would actually do that, but that's an interesting idea. And I'm not going to really talk about exactly how I'm going to build this thing and some of the things that are a little bit out there, because that'll be another episode. But let's just say you'll be able to fully ventilate it and have it fully enclosed at the same time. Um, very easily. And uh, that's that's probably worth the added cost. Now, here's the big thing. 
When am I going to do this? Next season. Um, the wife's getting her kitchen this year. So we, we have, like all families, we have to budget. We have a big remodel we want to do in the kitchen. That's going to cost over $10,000 to do, and our kitchen sucks. And my wife's dealt with me doing all this crazy stuff for two years now almost. It'll be two years in January that we've been here, and she wants a kitchen, and damn it, she's getting a kitchen. And I'm, I'm taking a step back on doing all these other things so that she can have her kitchen. And frankly, it's my kitchen too. All right, so now, going into the concept of backyard nurseries and small nurseries. So it doesn't have to be a backyard. I mean, you could do a lot with an acre. So let's say you wanted to go in business in a plant production, food production type situation. You can build an urban farm on an acre, but you can make a lot more money on a one-acre nursery than you could ever make on a one-acre farm. I firmly believe that because of what you can produce in such small areas. Uh, taking a larger area just kind of gets insane. But let's start talking about what makes the nursery model in of itself a good business model. The first thing is... And I want to talk to you, this is where I want to revisit what we talked about earlier, the concept of value creation. And, and that's part of really understanding money is actually a symbol of energy, and energy is where the value is. But it's a product production model. In other words, it's not a reseller model. It can be, and I'll talk a little bit about how that can be a springboard into things or help you build a customer base. But the reality is the people that make the most in the world are those that actually create the original value. And when you're producing for yourself, you have a fixed cost. And you don't have to go back and keep renegotiating it. All you can do is lean out your inefficiencies and keep driving your fixed costs lower so you have a lower fixed cost. And you can adapt your production to meet your demand. If it looks like everybody's going to want apples next year, you can start growing apples now. Just think that way. But on the value creation scenario, I had this discussion in the comments of the episode about money, and I realized how much value a lot of people saw in the comments, and I wanted to make sure it got put back into an episode in audio for those of you that don't go by the blog and comment, whatever. But um, here's what I said, that if, once you understand that money is energy, then you understand that since it's energy, it can be harnessed. And in, in the blog comments, what I said is if you want to harness solar energy – You do that with something like a photovoltaic panel. Or you might do it with a passive solar heat gain system or what have you. But there's a way to trap and hold and then reuse that energy. If you want to harness the energy of wind, you do it with a turbine. If you want to harness tidal energy, you do it with tidal energy generation systems. There's energy in abundance all around us. More energy from the sun falls on the earth in one day, then we need to power the whole world for a year. We just don't know how to harness it. Harnessing half of it is a pipe dream right now. But we only need to harness a small portion of it every day to do everything we need for a day. Because it's enough to do everything for a year. More than enough. And then if we start seeing money units that way, we realize that money energy is all around us. All these forms of energy are forms of money. And if we want to have wealth, then we develop capture mechanisms for them. And if we capture energy, and then we harness and control and channel energy, we can basically create batteries of wealth. That's what a savings account is. That's what uh, uh, an investment in silver or gold or in a commodity or in a company is. It's a wealth battery. And unlike a lot of other systems where what goes in has to equal what comes out, 
with value creation, others lend value to your battery and your wealth grows. So it would be like if you set up photovoltaic panels, but people looked at them and thought, those are cool. I want to go stare at them for whatever weird reason. And all around your photovoltaic panels were these little cranks, right? And if you stand there and crank that crank, it's a hand generator, right? And the payment to look at your photovoltaic panel and stare at it was while you're staring at it, you have to turn the crank. Now you're actually creating more energy because somebody else is bringing their energy to you. That's what happens when you create value. Now, I know it sounds ridiculous, okay, that someone would come and turn a crank to stare at your photovoltaic panels. I don't know. Maybe if it played a movie, it would. Now, it's not... It's still obeying the laws of thermodynamics and energy. The energy from their turning their hand had to be caloric energy at one point that they're now exerting with you. You have garnered their energy through some sort of value add. This is how growing plants and trees works. This is why it's a value creation business. We take a seed that costs us less than a penny. We put it in the ground and we give it water and nutrient time and it harnesses solar energy And we look at it, and by the time it's a one-and-a-half-year-old seedling, we have 25 cents of our effort into it. But someone else will come to us and maybe give us $10 in monetary energy in return for us giving them what cost us a quarter or 50 cents. We call that profit. But what it actually is, is the harnessing of monetary energy. Not some weird, etherical crap. Right? This is a genuine harvesting. That person went out and expended their energy for their $10. We expended a much less significant amount of energy, and we built a system that harnessed natural energy, earth nutrient, earth mineral, and solar radiation. And by knowing the, the formula to do that, we've created a value added in the form of a plant that can be exchanged for monetary energy. Right? That's value creation. And it's why I think this industry is one of the best. It also is the case that current demand exceeds supply. I can't tell you how many places I wanted to get something this year that by the time I got around to having enough money to order it, it was sold out. A lot of things that I just couldn't get my hands on. The people that came for the plant uh, planning course that we did in the spring this year, well, where's this? Where's that? Couldn't get it. Couldn't get it. I'm one small fish in a very big pond here, folks. I am a freaking, I'm not even a guppy. I'm the microscopic phytoplankton that the guppy eats in an ocean where there's whales when it comes to planting and plant propagation and things. And I couldn't get what I wanted. What does that mean? Okay. Um, it also allows for story-based marketing. I want to talk about this a little bit more, so I want to go brief on it now. But it, it is true that... There's value creation from growing a plant or growing a cutting into a plant just from that alone that people will see. But value is subjective. If you learn nothing else from me about money and money management and financial management and business, understand that value is subjective. In other words, I could say to you, I have this item and just tell you what it does. And you say, that has a value to me of $10. Like I show it to somebody else who's been looking for it their whole life, and they'll pay $50 for it and won't blink. And I say, well, this is the only one I have, and I haven't seen one for a long time. And you still say, that's worth $10 to me. I have other ways to get that accomplished. And the guy that's always wanted it will pay $50. Why well, value subjective? Once you understand the concept of subjective value, you have the ability 
to sell things either easier or for more money or in higher numbers or all three. Because you play to the subjective value. This is not ripping somebody off. This is not scamming somebody. This is understanding what they value and conveying to them that this is what I'm offering you. And story-based marketing is one that we, we do that with. Here's why. If someone comes to your home, especially the typical suburban home, and you've done anything unique, you tell them about it. If you come to somebody's house, you look at their kitchen, and it gets remodeled, and unlike me, it's going to pay somebody to do it. You do it yourself. You put your own tile down, and it's beautiful tile work. And somebody says, wow, that's how, let me tell you how the wife and I did this. I had a friend, Hal Dodd, that they did exactly that. Right? Like, look at what we did. We went, we took a class, we learned how to do it, we got a wet saw, we did all this. And, and it's like, and the person they're talking to is like, wow, I didn't know it was that easier. And they know, well, it's not really that easy, a lot of physical work and all, but they tell the story. And everything in your life, a new pool goes in, a gazebo, anything like that. So if a person goes down to Home Depot and says, you know, I'd like a couple of apple trees in my yard, talks to some guy at Home Depot, doesn't know his ass from hauling around about an apple tree, and goes, so I'd buy two different varieties, at least he knows that. Right, So they cross-pollinate, even if they're not timed right, and even if they're not right for the region. The guy brings the two trees home, plants them, even if they do well and grow. So he comes over, you got apple trees. Oh, yeah, I bought them at Home Depot. Well, what kind are they? I don't remember. Try this instead. I have a fig that I bought from Rain Tree Nursery. Don't remember which name it is, but I'll bet you when I'm marketing it, I'll know what the name is. It was found by a guy who's into figs in Washington State, where it gets much colder than it does in Texas, who went up into the mountains to an old research station and found a fig tree that was almost 100 years old, that had survived with very little help or support in, in, in the lower parts of the Washington mountains. It produces a great fig. And he took cuttings off of it and began to propagate it. And then sold them to Rain Tree Nursery, who now has them available. I now have one. I will plant it. It will be able to survive here if it can survive there. I will love on it and baby it for a year, and it will grow. When it does, I will take cuttings from it, and I will make new trees. And then when I sell that to a customer, I won't just say it's a fig tree. I'll tell them the story. Would you like one in your backyard? That's value added. Now, what happens is that person plants a fig tree, and somebody comes over and goes, Wow, figs grow here? Yeah, that one's actually so cold-hearty, you could grow it, Tom, up where you live in Oklahoma. Because it's from Washington. I got it from this guy, and he got it from... Aha, now it's value-add. The story has value. And you might think the story doesn't have value, but how much do you pay for entertainment in your life? We buy stories all the time. We buy music, which are nothing but stories set to some sort of tempo. We buy tickets to movies, we buy downloads to Netflix, we buy, we buy uh, DVDs still, some people still buy DVDs. We buy stories. So if we take a product and tie a story to it, we increase its value. And this is one of the easiest ways I know to get into story-based marketing as a product line. Um, you're also selling an appreciating asset. So if I want to sell you a car, this is a very special car, You and I both know that car will be worth half of what it is by the time you get halfway through paying it off and owe more than half is on the car. I'm selling you a depreciating asset. And there's very few assets in the world that you can buy that you know are appreciating assets anymore. In a consumer-driven society, we've gone into a depreciating asset model. Most people spend most of their money on things that depreciate in value. 
about the only appreciating asset that people buy anymore is housing. And housing tends to appreciate far more due to inflation. So it's an inflation hedge more than it is actually an appreciating asset. So the very fact that a house costs more today than it does yesterday is more based on the devaluation of money than it is about the increasing value of a home. I know some markets move rapidly, et cetera, and, but they usually you know, have these things called bubbles, too. When you look at median housing pricing over the years, it's pretty much in a reflection of inflation. So it, it, a three-bedroom, three-bath home, a three-bedroom, two-bath home that's 1,500 square feet with a quarter-acre backyard is exactly what it was 20 years ago as it is today. And if somebody's building new houses that are selling for about the same price in that niche that have all new upgrades, it might actually be harder to sell an old home unless it has this appreciating value in its neighborhood, which is going to be based mostly on, guess what, trees. Have you, have you ever realized that? Like when you see an older neighborhood and the houses aren't quite what they could be if they were built today, but they're still pretty nice and people want to live in that neighborhood One of the biggest draws is there's mature trees in the neighborhood, and it's shaded, and it's beautiful. You're selling that when you're selling plants and trees that are perennial. As they grow, as they get bigger, they cost more money. And you can see it for yourself. Go to any major nurseries website where they sell not just one-and-a-half and two-and-a-half-year-old trees, where they sell you know, six-, seven-year-old trees, caliper-sized trees, four-, five-, six inches in diameter, and see what a tree that size costs versus a seedling. It's an appreciating asset. If, if you put a, a tree in this year, and we can still buy new trees this year, and I come over to your house and we're playing football and I fall on it and break it in half, you're not that upset with me if I say, here's 20 bucks, let's get a new tree and stick it in the ground for you. But if I come to your house after that tree's been in the ground for 10 years, and you've asked me to do some clearing with my chainsaw for you, and you weren't very clear and I'm a dumbass, and I don't know that's an apple tree, and I cut down a 10-year-old apple tree. How pissed off are you now? Why? It's an appreciating asset. If you want to be in a business selling something, sell appreciating assets. That means if you sit on inventory, the value of your inventory also goes up. I'm just saying. There's countless niches. Here's just a few. Cider apples. I think it's going to be one of the biggest niches there is in the next 30 years. Cider is red hot, and it's going to get hotter, especially with people wanting to be more gluten-free and grain-free and things like that. And cider is just a rediscovered art. And there's you know bitters and sharps and sharp bitters and all these different types of apples needed to make really great ciders. And cider of today is, is shit compared to what it'll be in 10 years. I believe that. This is going to go through the same artisan uh, evolution that Microbrew did. And it's, it's, it's just something that's time has come. It's returned. And he, I don't even think it's returned. I think it's going to a new level than from wherever it was. The, the old days of making hard cider was you took all the apples you didn't want to eat and all the apples that were a little bit damaged and you pressed them and you made cider and you fermented it because it didn't go bad. And so people got pretty good at it, but it wasn't taken to the science that microbrewing's taken today. It, it, cider is going to be taken through that scientific evolution. So that's just one niche. And right now, the people that are putting in orchards to do cider can't get enough trees. Medicinal plants, huge. I'm going to talk about a couple of medicinals I'm excited to work with, but there's so many medicinals out there. And they're being sold on shelves in supermarkets and Walmarts. When you see something on a shelf at a Walmart, it is a product that you can move, period. The next thing is regional-specific. 
There's so much that can be done with developing strains and varieties and just figuring out what varieties do well in your area, not even making new ones. Just finding out these are the 10 apples that will do good in this area and then putting in 20 of them so you have grafting material, growing your own rootstock and just selling. And when somebody says, well, you only sell these 20 apples, that's all I sell because they're the best for this area. How big of a space do you have? Let me help you plan five of them into a space. You don't get that from Home Depot. Forget about it. I don't care if it's ten. I don't care if it's five. I don't care if you find the five best apples or five best plums and say the reason I do these five is they are proven in our area. They are regionally adapted and they guild together well. What's a guild? That's a buying question. Ding, ding, ding. When you start studying the sales process, you start learning that when somebody asks certain questions in certain ways, they're saying, I want to buy from you. Help me. Make me believe a little bit more. Or give me just a little bit more understanding so that I know why I'm doing this. Buying questions are golden in dealing with customers. It's not getting them. It's not shrewd used car salesmanship type stuff. It is understanding that the conveyance of value is what's necessary for commerce to happen. People buying from anyone should understand why they're buying, what they're buying, and feel that they're getting the value they paid for. And that only happens when buying is an informed process, and that only happens when the person doing the selling is informed enough to convey the knowledge. You, you, this, is, this is that little piece right there, guys. You can go to a sales seminar for two weeks, and that's probably more value than most of them will ever give you. Do you understand that one thing? Because that tells you everything you need to know about selling, whether you're selling through a marketing platform that's all text-based and visual and things like that, or you're actually selling one-on-one. doesn't matter. It's the same thing. Um, the next thing I think would be, and I was kind of leaning toward this already, what I call build-a-guilds. So that somebody comes to you and says, well, I want to plant a few apples, and I, I, you know, I don't know how. Well, let me explain a few things to you. Like, the best thing you could do is take the area and do this thing called sheet mulching. Here's how that works. Here's where you can get all your materials, either buy them or get them for free, depending on how long you want it to take to happen. And then into that, you want to plant, if, if, if you want to have an area, how big? Okay, so I'd say four trees will work well in that area, not five. And into that area with these four trees, I would plant these other plants. Now, these other plants actually support bring in pollinators, help repel pests, etc., and they do these other things for you and provide these other valuable things to you, and they make the whole thing low-maintenance. Where do I get them? All right here in a package. It's a build-a-guild. Right? I can, you know, I can just tell me the size. I'll, I'll draw it out on a piece of paper for you. It's shaped about like this? Yeah. Apple 1, Apple 2, Apple 3, Apple 4. Put in some blackberry here, some goji berry there, an autumn olive around here, here, and here. We're going to put a comfrey plant right below each apple tree. That's going to help bring minerals up and feed the apple tree. You don't have to explain dynamic accumulation unless the person wants to know. And, and then this is all. And how much is that? It's $250. I can load it in your truck for you right now. Bazinga. Right? For those that are fans of Sheldon Cooper. It, it can be that easy if you build it that way. It may not work in every market. Any of these things you have to determine, is it right for you, for your time, and, and, and what you're going to be doing, and the market that you're in? Are you a thousand miles from a town of any size, or are you right in the middle of suburbia? Believe it or not, suburbia might be a hell of a lot better place to do this. I think someone could tailor what I would call build-a-guilds for backyard suburban yards. Like, I have like ten. You just pick which one you want. Right? You want What do you want to produce? Plums and apples? Bing. Pa package B. Right here. 
This is set up for, and figure out what the average area is that's going to work. And when somebody says, my area is twice that big, buy two. Or are you, do you like persimmons? Yeah, then you want B and C. People like to buy packages. They like to feel like, I know what to do now. Okay? Uh, and then what can you think of? I bet you if we start having people comment on this episode of ways to, to develop niches within this industry, that you could end up with the longest comment thread ever on TSP if people really tried. So give it a shot. Next, it also creates what I, what I consider to be the most important things in a business. Repeat and referral. A business that's going to grow and develop over time must have both of those things. It's more important than the product, the profit margin, etc. Assuming there's enough product to meet demand, assuming there's enough profit to make the work worth doing, then the business is scalable. Okay? Because as long as the, those two things are constant, I can hire, I can outsource, I can do whatever I need to, to scale the business to the demand. Okay? Um, and if the demand is sufficient, then the business can be profitable. But if it's going to grow, I can spend all my time trying to get new customers constantly. Or I can have customers come back over and over again. And I can get those customers to tell other people to do business with me. If I can do those two things, my business can't help but succeed unless I shoot myself in the foot and ruin my own business. Or if I'm unable to meet demand or deliver product or make a profit. Right? I have to do those things. But once those things are nailed down, the, the gold is... See, I talk about value creation. And value creation is about having other people perceive the value that you're delivering at such a level that they're willing to give more. Well... We've also talked about the forms of capital, the eight different forms of capital, like social capital, experiential capital, cultural capital. All beings have these different meanings, these types of capital. And people say, well, I don't have much social capital. But to me, you do. If you have three people you can tell about my podcast, that's immense social capital. Because one of them might listen. And he might know one person to tell. And that one person might listen. And he might know two people, and out of those two, that one person, you know, might only get one. But that guy might know a hundred or a thousand. You'll tell them all. And it all started with the fact that you had this little tiny piece of social capital you thought you had. What you actually had was a link into a network of higher and higher levels of social capital. And those types of things are massive, especially in a day and age where somebody can go, this guy rocks, tweet a hundred thousand people. I mean, that's, that's the world we live in, and you never know who knows, who knows, who knows, who knows, right? And you only get there by treating everybody really, really well, as long as they qualify to be your customer. That means that they're reasonable people that, that understand value, that want to do business with you. And if they don't meet those criteria, fire their asses as customers. I will do it that fast in my businesses, all of them. A customer that's too much trouble, that takes away the resources and time that could go to serving a good customer is expensive and I cannot afford them and they must be fired immediately. Always remember that too. But repeat and referral business. Next, the products, or I'm sorry, the legal hurdles, small. Now, if you live in an HOA that says you can't do this stuff, that's totally different. In most areas, all you need to be able to legally, even in conjunction with the man, Run a nursery as a nursery permit uh, from your state. Most of them run, on average, about 60 bucks. Some are good for a year. Some are good for five years. To have a permit, that means that somebody from the state comes out and inspects once in a while. 
They look and make sure you don't have diseases on your plants. And you're not transmitting pests other way. So they'll come out and go, you know what, you've got some, uh, uh, some sort of aphid that you need to knock down. Now their method of fixing it may not be the method you use. They'll give you advice. And it's all going to be conventional advice. But you don't have to follow, follow it. All they're going to do is say that you can't ship those things or sell those things right now because they're infected, which you don't want to be doing. And many times they'll say, like, take corrective action. They won't even say, they won't even stop you. And this doesn't happen often. I've talked to people that have seen uh, an inspector once in four years. I've talked to people that see them once every year. But it's not the big scary man. It's not a SWAT team. It's like one random person. And when they find out you're a backyard nursery, they're kind of like, oh, okay. Because you're easy. And it's, yeah, everything looks pretty good. So even if you're doing things completely with the legal requirements, in you got to check your own localities. Some places you got to have a bit. It's not about it's a nursery. You have to have a separate business license to be a business. Move out of that state, for God's sakes, please, California. Anyway, other than that, it's really a low legal hurdle. There's not a lot to be done to even insurances shouldn't be very high. Okay. Um, the next thing is the products can be sold locally, shipped, or both. And there are ways to ship very high-value product in very small packaging. So, for instance, I was listening to Diego Footer's podcast, Permaculture Voices podcast, and a guy that's developed apples specifically for hot climates. And he's not even really developed them. He's just taken all the apples that are out there that are already known, everything he can get his hands on, and grown them in warm climates and cataloged what grows well, and then focused on that. So it wasn't really a development. It was a discovery. Now, he does a very small graft. He buys almost all his rootstock from another rootstock supplier. And they use a full-size rootstock as it does better in the South, according to him, and I believe him. And he grafts a very small piece of scion. Scion is the wood that comes off the tree that you want to clone with a single bud on it. Where most want to put a whip on there with four, five, six buds. He puts a little bitty scion on there packages them up and sends them. And sometimes a customer gets that and goes, wow, that's little. But in one season, that thing takes off. The vigor is extensive as the tree tries to match the upward growth with the root that's below. And in two and a half years, as that tree's getting toward sort of producing, you would never know that it was ever that little. But what does it do? It makes it safer for him to ship. It's less likely the graft will be damaged during shipment and it makes it cheaper for him to ship, so he can ship very inexpensively. So the person now buying from him far away that only wants four or five trees, where shipping might conventionally be a hurdle, can afford the shipping or justify the shipping. That's just one example. That's just one. There's tons of examples of how you can be creative with how you package things and make shipping more reasonable for people. I think people would be more likely to buy from you and spend $300 for a Build-A-Guild, okay, than they would to buy one or two trees from you where the shipping's going to be about the same. Shipping only appears expensive based on, on, on how much you're getting. So if I buy a tree for $20 and my shipping is $15, as far as I'm concerned, I just bought a $35 tree. Well, hell, I can go down to Home Depot and buy one for $19.99. I might understand that that tree is unique and I can only get it from this one guy And that's the only thing I, that's all, as many of those as I can get right now. So I'm willing to do it. But most people, most of your customers won't. But if I can buy $300 worth of trees 
in a build a guild or whatever you want to call it with a you know basically it tells me where to plant everything and everything ships and I get everything and my shipping's 20 bucks the shipping is irrelevant to me at that point it's completely irrelevant it's one third of 20 percent you want to do the math <laughs> that's that's a little bit of non-common core way of doing basic algebra to figure out the math right <laughs> anyway it's not significant anymore all right um, it's also easily started, but not easily replicated. Businesses that are easily replicated are ripe to be sniped and comp competed out of business by bigger, bigger players. So you usually think something easy to start is easy to replicate. But a, a nursery business is not easy to replicate. Because there's so many ways you can create unique individual value adds. So the giant catalog company can say, we have 400 varieties of apples. And you can say, well, I have the five that grow in your backyard. You see how that works, right? The, 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 the Home Depot can say, we have a lower price. And you can say, well, I can tell you exactly what to plant in a 12 by 60 foot area that will produce more than their crap ever will. I have this one fig from the mountains of Washington. I have this unique variety that I've been working with for 10 years. I will load it in your car for you. I will tell you what to do if it doesn't grow the way that I told you it will grow. There's just so many ways that you can be unique. I'm the apple guy. I'm the plum guy. I'm the plum and apple guy. I'm the medicinal herbs guy. I'm the mushroom dude. Whatever it is, right? You know, and, and, and you can then bolt on other value adds to that to the point where people want to do business with you And the plants and the trees and whatever else they're buying from you is just how they do business with you. That you individually have created a new, unique brand and a unique value add that is so unique that I don't care that that guy's tree is four bucks less. I want to I deal with Brad, right? Or I want to deal with Tammy. Or I want to deal with Tom. Or I want to deal with Sue. It, I want to buy from their family. I want to keep my business local. Local is becoming one of the hottest niches there is right now. How much more local is buying plants that you grow to produce your own food locally from the guy that's producing them locally? There's just so many ways that you can make your business difficult to replicate, but yet it's easy for you to start. And there's tons of small producer advantages over the big guys because of that. So I want to kind of, as I get toward the end of the day, finish up with some plants I'm personally excited to work with and, and why I'm excited to work with them. One is goji berry. I've talked about it before, but if you go to the, the show notes today, you'll see one of the reasons why. You'll see my hand, uh, and you'll see this little stick. And the little stick has these little white things coming out of it. Those are roots. Those are roots that were put on that cutting in five days. This is a $20 plant. I can root in five days. Now, it's not a $20 plant once it's rooted. Understand that. It needs to be, if I want to sell for $20, bucks, I need to grow it out some. But I can probably grow it out for a couple months, and it's a $10 plant, especially to a person in my area that doesn't spend his days paging through catalogs like I do, and they go, what is this plant? I go, it's a goji berry. And you tell them what a goji berry is, where they came from, how they got to America. Do you know that story? Find out, if you don't, how gojis originally got here, what they do, their medicinal value. Oh, the leaves can be made into a tea. You can do a green tea or a black tea. Here's how you do a black tea. How much is it? $10. I'll take three. Here you go. 
because it's story-based marketing. And it's easy to make more of them. The next one is um, designer autumn olives, I'm calling them, and gummies. And the reason I'm excited about those is like the designer autumn olives have these different colors and shapes and larger fruit and good taste and things like that. And the gumi, you know, is a plant that comes originally from Asia and the Ukraine. And those both have good stories with them. They're nitrogen fixers. They're hardy as all get out. They survive well here. Yeah, they're supposedly invasive. But my view is if you're productive, invade me. And those plants are not something you see at Home Depot. You don't see gummies, you don't see autumn olives, and you don't see goji berries. So I'm already value add over the box stores. I've got three plants right there that I know do well here, that have unique stories, that have unique products, that will fit in anywhere. Anybody has room to tuck a few in. Extremely hardy and unique. And I know they're going to talk about it. I know they're going to tell friends about it. They're going to be like, check this out. This thing's producing berries already. Look at these things. I planted it last year. Where'd you get it? I got it from this guy. In this case, it'd be this, girl, this, this lady, right? Dorothy, the plant lady. Where I get my eggs. You start stacking these things together and understand that. Um, I also am really excited about working with various seedling style and spitter apples, as they call them, for um, the, the cider industry. I think there's a whole industry waiting to happen here in North Texas just in cider. I think this could be one of the greatest apple-growing places ever. Apples don't give a shit about alkalinity. Did you know that? If you can figure out how to get water to them and give them enough support and mulch, and you're trying to grow the hardiest, toughest, bitter, sharp-type apples, there's no reason this can't be an amazing growing region for apples. And I just start running my little calculations in my head is, If you could find people that wanted to work together and you were doing the nursery and they had four or five acres and they were willing to make the investment and you were willing to work together, you're providing the plants, they're providing the land, you're helping with the marketing. What could you do with a cider industry? You know, and you might even find a local producer that already has a, a brewing or venting license, whatever they need in your state based on what they're doing. There's some places that a brewer cannot use anything but grain. You know, there's all different types of hurdles, but you can always find a way around them. And then you get into a place where many people now have states that say it's much easier to get a license to produce alcoholic beverages if all or a certain portion of the product you're using is coming from within your state. It's like these, these uh, instead of a, a micro, they call them a microscopic or some a nano, nano brewery, nano distilleries. And some states, that's how you get one, is basically all my product comes from my state. Because in your state, tells the federal government, we don't really give a crap what you want. It's in-state business, go away. Especially if you live in a state like, I don't know, Texas. So that's, that's something I'm kind of excited about. And just figuring out what I can do. Bush cherries. So I wanted to plant Nanking, Korean, and Hanson's bush cherry down here and see if they would even survive. The Nanking and the Koreans seem to be doing okay. We'll see. The Hansons are growing like crazy. Now, I'm not going gangbusters on them just yet. Next year, if they produce anything, because they're still going to be very small, then I know they'll produce here. My concern is chilling requirements. If they produce, the Hansons bush cherry is cheap, hardy, And the leaves turn bright scarlet freaking red in fall. I mean, this is an ornamental tree that produces something edible that grows well in my climate. 
and they're cheap. They're very, very cheap. I guess cheap's the wrong word, low cost. Ten bucks on average, one off. But I've seen them at times where you can buy bundles of seedlings and get them inexpensive. So um, you might want to wonder why I would grow something that's inexpensive. Well, if it's something I can buy tons of seedlings for a buck or two apiece, and I can develop a market for them, I can start selling before I'm producing. Um, the other thing is, let's say that you could even just go buy them one off for five bucks online. Well, it doesn't mean you can get them here. You can't get them here. So if and, and cherries are something people like. And cherries, I'm learning, are difficult to grow in the South. They like cooler, more maritime climates and things like that. So if I can find anything that's cherry-like that does well here, and I have several other low-chill cherries. I've got Brooks. Uh, I've got Sweetheart. Uh, I've got uh, Royal Lee and Mini Royal uh, and some other stuff that I'm trying. But this is a bush cherry, again, that is a little bit different. And so it has its own unique thing. And if I can prove they work here, and I, I, I'm beginning to think I can, if they were combined with cider apples, I'm just saying, I'll leave it at that. Elders I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with, and I'm finding they're really easy to reproduce. Plums, um, plums we can graft, and we can you know either buy rootstock or grow rootstock, but plums generally do pretty good on their own roots. So we can even do plums from cuttings and then figs. Figs, I think, are one of the, the coolest things that we can be working with because they're so easy to propagate. There's so many varieties, and most of the varieties have stories, and stories sell. And there's something that people are like, people generally with figs think of like a fig newton. People have never had a fresh fig are like, eh, I don't know, a fig. But they also think of them as being exotic and, and something from the, the, the tropics or something like that. So you give someone a fresh fig, and it's over. It's just game over. It's like, oh my god, they are so amazing in flavor. There's, they don't like. See, what does a fig taste like? Well, it tastes like a fig. It might have some essences of strawberry or pineapple or things like that going on with different types, but in the end, they taste like a fig. Like, there's nothing else that really tastes like a fig. And you don't just go out and buy a box of fresh figs usually. So it has a tremendous amount of value, and it's it's a plant very traditionally grown in North America. We just don't realize it anymore. You have to go back. To before you could just go down to the store and buy sugar. Figs were one of the main sources of sugar in our country. Bees, you gotta know how to deal with bees, and, and there was nowhere near the honey industry, you know, in the early colonies that there is today. Um, a little bit more difficult, a little bit more highly prized and hard to get your hands on. Uh, sorghum was one of the main sugar things, but there's a lot of work to make in sorghum syrup. And sugar came from the tropics, and it, had, it was expensive. And the further out you were on the homestead, so to speak, the harder it was to come by. But you could grow a fig tree. You dried your figs, you chopped them up, and they were basically a form of sugar. So there's a long history, and there's all different varieties, and so much to be done with finding what's out there and working with figs that they're just an optimum thing to work with in a backyard nursery. And it's something that people like to buy and grow things they didn't know they could grow. People always focus on what they can't do versus what they can do. It's one of the major hurdles we have in edible backyards, edible landscapes, permaculture, agriculture, etc. Everybody wants to do what they don't think they can do. So if you tell them, yeah, what you don't think you can do is actually easy, they still want to do it. So figs, I think, are great. Final thoughts on this. I, I think this is one of the sweet spot businesses out there. I think that we're so far away from, let's say, a market saturation standpoint. If I started up a nursery and a guy down the road, two blocks away started up a nursery, I'd be overjoyed. 
I go down there, what are you doing? I'm, and I want to do what he's not doing, and I want him to do what I'm not doing, and I want to do some of the same things, and I want to trade information, and I want to trade customers, and I want, I want to be like, dude, if you have somebody looking for, for bush cherries, I've got them. And if you have enough people looking for them, I'll sell to you wholesale. And I got people asking me about this, so I'll buy that wholesale from you if you want to. Or we can just trade customers. We can sell each other plants at wholesale. Let's work together. Let's be bigger by being two small agile guys working together and actually be bigger but still more agile than a big company can be. I mean, I don't even care. I, I think that if there's another nursery, that's great. That means that if he's doing marketing, he's going to bring people into the area, and I have signage. Yeah, they're going to see my signage and know they can talk to me too. I mean, it, I, I have a hard time driving. If you're a plant person, you have a hard time driving past the nursery, whether it's little or big, and not stopping. You just like, oh, what, I wonder what they have, right? And it, a lot of you guys that are like into the, all planting stuff, and how many times have you gone in and been disappointed? It's dogwoods and verbenium and whatever. It's all it's Rose of Sharon, which has some value, but in the end, if you want it, you probably already have it. Um, it's all ornamentals. And it's not that ornamentals don't have a place. It's that if that's all that's there and you're looking for things that are edible, man, you're just like, man, come on, there's got to be more than this. And it's, it's amazing to me that this niche is so underserved. You can go buy a live oak tree at Home Depot nine months out of the year. You want an apple, you get a couple couple weeks in the sum, the spring and maybe a couple weeks in the fall where you might be able to pick some stuff up. They don't take care of it. I don't care how good, because a lot of these trees that you see at the box stores that you think are crap, they weren't crap when they got there. They're grown by nurserymen from small to medium to large that take very much pride in what they do. They grow beautiful roots. They grow beautiful trees. They prune them well. They pot them up because that's how they have to be sold in that environment. They send them off, and then they get into a Home Depot or a Lowe's or a Walmart or whatever. They get watered once every three days, it seems like. The plants look sick, and as it gets closer to the end of the season and everybody's cherry-picked the best-looking ones, the ones that are left over and sickly are just left to die. And if somebody buys them, they do it. If they don't, they don't. Man, talk about a, a group of customers that feel unappreciated. Appreciate them. Appreciate them. I'm not saying everybody out there that listens to this show should start a nursery tomorrow and sell to customers, but I'm saying if a thousand people did it, you wouldn't even step on each other's toes. And that I think that anybody that really wants to plant a lot of plants, that a thousand bucks invested in the materials and the knowledge necessary to do this can produce $50,000 worth of plants if you were paying retail for them. And you can't afford to plant $50,000 worth of plants. But you can afford to make them. I really think it's possible for anybody that wants to do it. You, again, you just start looking at plants that are $20 plants that reproduce from cuttings. And an intermittent misting system, like Nick Ferguson will show you how to do in his course, can do something like 3,900 and some odd cuttings. Let's call it 3,000. Let's call it 3000 And let's say if you bought them, they were $5 a piece. And you can do them all in one season. And that was a limit. So I'm going low here. So 3000 cuttings at a value of $5 each in a single season in a 4 by 8 misting bed. That's $15,000 in cuttings. And the truth is you can probably get the cuttings for free. 
If you can find, if you grow your, so you go out and you buy 10 trees or 10 plants like you want to produce from. And by the time you're in the second season, you just take cuttings and 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 cuttings. And cuttings. I know people that have done things like this. They put an ad on Craigslist. I will prune your fruit trees for you. And they, they say, I'll do it for free. If you're within a certain amount of area of me, you know, send me an email, I'll let you know. And sometimes they even go, yeah, you got two red delicious apples. I'm sorry, I'm full, I can't do it. But when somebody calls them, they have like ten different varieties of, of plums and, and pears or whatever. Say, so, okay, I'll do it. And they come over and they say, I'm going to do it in the dormant period, which is when you want your scion wood, your grafting wood. And they go and they get hundreds of dollars worth of scion wood to spend a little bit of time in a guy's backyard doing his pruning for him. And guess what you get to meet? Somebody that has a bunch of fruit trees. Might want some more. Potential customer. So there's so many ways to stack this stuff. And it's just about figuring out what do you want to do. Not everybody wants a business. I think most people who listen to this show, though, would like to be able to plant a lot of stuff. And it's just a more affordable way to do it. And my hope is that we get so many backyard nursery people going with permaethos through the TSP community that we actually give the people that don't want to do it another place to buy from. Where you can buy a hundred rooted cuttings for somebody for three bucks a piece. Because they could just root another hundred. And that's three hundred bucks to them, and that's thousands of dollars of saving to you. And that the different nurserymen can trade with each other. So we'll have a, a, a board on the Permaethos website where people can trade those things. And people that have taken our course will be you know, given a little badge that says they've taken the course and you know you're buying from someone that's producing under the guidelines that we've given them. So that's kind of the bigger vision that I have here. But I think if you don't want to take our course and you just want to learn how to do basic cuttings and stuff, go ahead and do it. If you can make some money or you can value add to your own property by manufacturing value versus paying somebody else for it, you're ahead. Remember what I said, it's about capturing value. That's really what it's all about. This is one way to do that. Because when you go buy a tree from someone for 80 bucks, a really nice tree, you're taking the money you earn and you're paying them for the value they lend to the tree. The reality is they can't possibly have put $80 of their capital in that tree or they'd be breaking even or losing money to sell to you. There's a profit there. This is a way to tie into the profit for yourself. And this doesn't mean that we don't buy from large. I will be buying from people like Bob Wells and Raintree and Stark Brothers for the rest of my life to get access to new material. It's about understanding how to integrate all of these things together. I mean, one of the things we did at Permaethos in West Virginia, we put in a swale, and this spring we're going to put about 20 of the most high-value variety fruit trees we can into those swells. We'll buy those from a nursery. And they're going to be in a spot where they're loved on and taken care of and watched for any sign of disease or illness. But those are going to be the trees we're taking our scion for grafting onto 100 acres of planting. I can't afford to buy trees. Our company cannot afford to buy trees to plant 100 acres. We just can't. But we can produce them. And whether it's a little backyard or a great big farm, you can produce them. So consider nursery uh, stuff for yourself or as a business. And then the other thing is, even if you don't want a nursery, take the business principles today. Apply them to your career. Apply them to your business. Value creation, value add, story-based marketing. 
subjective value, conveying the value, and making sure the buyer understands what they're buying and is comfortable with the purchase so that when they receive what you've sold them, they feel good about it. These are the keys to successful business and successful finance. Tomorrow i got a great show for you. Tomorrow i got a show that goes right into this. If you're thinking, well, how do I... How do I get started in a business and how do I fund it? Tomorrow I have John Pugliano on. And he's going to talk about how to think for themselves and how to build businesses and how to fund your businesses. So I'll have John on tomorrow. Then we'll have our usual Friday, Friday, Friday show coming up for you at the end of the week. Hopefully I've had a good, uh, a good show for you today on this Wednesday, this hump day to get you through the middle of the week and thinking about building your own businesses in the future. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares, they're living for